I always want to sing like never before, but then for some reason I'm afraid I'll lose my voice and not be able to speak. It doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> that's literally how I feel almost every time. Oh, boy. If I make any trouble up here, they could just say I work with youth and then... Well, good morning. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Glad you're here. Uh, our initial reading this morning will be from Second Corinthians chapter 5. You may follow along with me if you want. I'm using an NASB, so it may get a little jarbled if you're using a different Bible. But And if you're willing, uh, please stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read it together here this morning. I'll be starting in 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 14. And it says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who might live, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Thanksgiving season. Thank you uh, for us being able to gather together here without fear. Uh, Lord, thank you for reconciling us to yourself through Christ. Thank you that he took the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Please be with us this morning. Let us learn from you and hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. This morning, I would like to discuss the topic of guilt, namely what it is and how to deal with it. And in this message, I'll be discussing three types of guilt, what I've termed initial guilt, and then recurring guilt, and then finally false guilt. I believe the first kind of guilt, initial guilt, is the most detrimental to our eternal life for obvious reasons, and that the last kind, false guilt, is most detrimental to our spiritual growth. I'll be proceeding with this message along the following lines. First, I'm going to talk about what guilt is, its nature. I'm going to define it. Second, we'll be discussing the three types of guilt, or maybe better said, guilt at three different levels, if you will. And finally, I'll summarize the solutions, how to get beyond guilt, and the role of the cross of Christ in each of these. I, had, I was going to do notes for you guys, but I was late, so I didn't get any. If anybody wants them after this, just... Let me know and I'll email, I'll email them to you. Once again, I don't have a PowerPoint, so it could be argued that I'm pointless yet again. All right, Noah Webster, 1828 Dictionary, defines guilt as the following. A crime or a debt, 
the state of a moral agent which results from him or his or her actual commission of a crime or offense, knowing it to be a crime or a violation of law. In other words, you have to be a rational being with free will to incur guilt. You'll never see a dog being thrown in jail for failing to respond to his subpoena, although he may have refused the flea bargain. If you, if you can't laugh at that this morning, there, I don't have anything else in here to laugh at. That's the best I could do. To constitute guilt, there must be a moral agent enjoying freedom of will and capable of distinguishing between right and wrong in a willful act or violation of a known law, rule, or duty. Webster summarizes, guilt of a person exists as soon as a crime is committed. And I'll simply add to this that it's accompanied uh, usually by feelings of shame, sorrow, or regret. And I'll be speaking more about this later. Now, here's where we immediately get into trouble. How many know the Ten Commandments? Even some of them? One of them? I saw like four hands go up. Really? All right. We're, we're, we're really in trouble. How many of us keep them? All of them all the time. No hands. Good. If you raised your hand, you were lying. James 2.10 says, Forever, Whoever keeps the whole law and just and stumbles at one point has become guilty of breaking all of them. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've lied, you've also murdered. This is talking about the unity of the law. It's a unified whole. That simply means if you've broken any of the commandments, then you've broken the law. If you break the law, you are a lawbreaker. Here's the basic syllogism to illustrate the point. Anyone who breaks any of God's laws is guilty. We've broken at least one of God's laws, therefore we are guilty. Good. That's the bad news. If you're here and you've broken any of the commandments, then you're guilty before a holy and righteous judge. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive our recompense according to our deeds done in the flesh, whether good or bad. But you're not alone. Paul says in Romans 3.9, he says, What then? Are we, the Jews, better than the Gentiles? There's only two types of people that Paul talks about, Jews and non-Jews. That's, that's everybody else. That's us. Are we any better? He says, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Fourteen verses later, he says, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is... There we go. So that's what guilt is. Guilt is a legal status of a person who has committed a crime. In this case, it's a crime perpetrated against the Creator God Himself. It can be and often is accompanied by feelings of shame, sorrow, or regret. This is broadly what we know and call sin, and it describes the inward condition of the human heart, which is symptomatic of each and every one of us. So now that we know what guilt is, let's talk about how we get beyond it. Because if you're not guilty, you don't need to get beyond it. If you're not sick, you don't need medicine. But if you are guilty, then there's good news. In fact, that's what the gospel is. It means good news. So in what follows, I'll be addressing how to get beyond or overcome guilt, both as a legal status as well as its accompanying feelings. And to this end, I'll be talking about it in three respects. Like I said, initial guilt, recurring guilt, and false. So let's begin with initial guilt. What do I mean by initial guilt? By initial guilt, I simply mean the legal status that we possess in the presence of God before we come to Christ. Plainly, it's how God sees us before he saves us from our sins. Ephesians 2.1, Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses 
in sins. Ephesians 2, 3, we're called children of wrath. Romans 1, 32, worthy of death. Romans 5, 10, enemies of God. This is great for our self-esteem. John 5, 29, committers of evil deeds. 8, 44, children of the devil. 12, 46, in the darkness. 3, 19, lovers of darkness. Romans 6, 20, slaves of sin. Matthew 7, 23, workers of iniquity. You get the sense that it's not a very good position to be in. And that's what I mean by initial guilt. It is how we come into this world as a result of original sin. David says in Psalm 51, 5, in, excuse me, in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul says in Romans 5, 12, through one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. St. Augustine summarizes, we are born with a propensity to sin and a necessity to die. That's a great quote. So the question is not whether or not this is fair, but whether or not it's true. And indeed, if it is true, which I'm not going to provide an apologetic for that right now, but if it is, then all of us are initially guilty before God in which the sentence is eternal death. But now we're going to see how to get beyond this. And the good news, indeed the great news, is that God already made a way for us, as most of us already know. So what is the solution to initial guilt? John 3.16, the verse that everybody has memorized. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall never perish but have eternal life. John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And finally, John 6, 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That's all you have to do to overcome initial guilt. That's all you have to do to go from being a sinner to a son or daughter of God. Now, some of you say it can't be that simple. Well, it is that simple. Uh, In Luke 23, when the thief is dying on the cross next to Christ, He looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus looks over at him and says, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So what do you have to do to be saved? What do you have to do to be assured of heaven and eternal life to overcome initial guilt? You simply have to say, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. You acknowledge he's Lord, acknowledge he's died for your sins, and you ask him to forgive you. That's it. You don't have to talk to a priest. You don't have to do a thousand Hail Marys or 5,000 Protestant push-ups. You can just simply ask Christ into your heart right now where you're sitting by talking to Him, admitting you're a sinner, and accepting Him as your Savior. You don't have to get your life together first. So that's how we overcome initial guilt. God's law needs to be fully obeyed. None of us obey it. Christ fully obeyed it. Through his obedience, we're imputed his righteousness. In other words, he takes the guilty verdict away from us. Because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Our key verse. So that's initial guilt, and that's how we overcome it. Now let's get to the good part. Recurring guilt. This is the second kind. By recurring guilt, I mean two things. I mean the objective fact that even though we're Christians, we still sin. And I also mean the subjective burden that accompanies sin, whether past or present, and tends to eat away at us emotionally or spiritually. And please note right now that that, this has to do with our relationship with God, not our standing 
in Christ. Once you're saved, you're saved. However, the relationship with you and God can still be fractured, and often is. So after we're saved, we still sin. In fact, we do it all the time. And there's an objective reality that we're comporting ourselves or presenting ourselves to be guilty, once again, in the presence of God. Of course, not in the same way as initial guilt. Don't forget that. Psalm 51, 4, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned. When he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he, gets, he tells Nathan, he goes, I've sinned. And this is David, the saved man. And Nathan says, God has taken away your sins. You will not die. 1 John 2, 1 begins, My little children, I'm writing th- these things to you so that you will not sin. There we go. Furthermore, there's also an emotional baggage that attends sin and can be absolutely crushing to our spirits. This can either be for past sins that have already been committed and asked forgiveness for, or present sins. So, have you ever confessed your sins and you expected to feel better, but you didn't? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been assured by someone else that God loves you and cares for you? However, you can't seem to bring yourself to Him to receive forgiveness all over again. Something in you just can't do it. It's as if God saved you the first time, but now he's absolutely unwilling to forgive you because, look, you messed up again. You poor sap. Why did you do it? The theologian Thomas Aquinas, or if you're a Roman Catholic, St. Thomas, or just Thomas if you run in philosophical circles, or if you're my wife, Tommy, which drives me absolutely crazy, when, when she and I first met Norm Geisler down in North Carolina, I just sat in awe of him while, while she and him just talked about what it was like to be in the UP. And she studied philosophy under Nancy Piercy, but she's completely unaffected by these individuals. But she gets nervous around my mother, which just doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, Thomas Aquinas has a very keen insight, I think, into the nature of sin and its effects on the human soul. And he refers to it as the stain of sin. And I'll just read a little snippet out of his uh, Summa Theologica. It says, The stain of sin remains in the soul even after the act of sin is past. And he says, For although the act of sin ceases, whereby man withdrew from the light of reason and the divine law, man does not at once return to the state in which he was before. Now that makes sense. You're in a relationship with God. You sin, let me make sure I don't fall off the step here. You stop sinning, but now look where you are. Your relationship with God was over here. Just because we stop sinning, we do not immediately go back to the relationship with God uh, from whence we came. So in other words, even though we're saved and we sin, there still occurs a rift in the relationship. The Thomistic philosopher, that means a philosopher of Thomas Aquinas himself, Eleanor Stump comments on this. She says, The stain of sin can theoretically remain even after a person has already repented for it. Think on that for a minute. Even after you repent, the stain of sin on your soul can remain. And she writes, quote, Whatever exactly Aquinas meant these effects to be, it seems to me that among these effects left by past sin are the distressing knowledge of what it feels like to be a person who has committed a particular sin and the tormenting awareness of what it is like to want to do an evil action. Now, all of us can experience this right now if we want. In other words, all you have to do is sit and think about what are the things that you've done that makes you so guilty 
and you hated it, all you have to do is think about it. Because you remember what it was like before you did it, and you remember what you felt like after you did it. And that's what she's talking about. There's a stain on the soul, something that doesn't seem to go away. You can return to it anytime you want to. So the question isn't how to erase it or expunge it. I would argue that, in a, in, that Christ already did that in a way. But the question is how to get beyond it because it's going to be there till we're glorified. And that doesn't happen until the end. So again, recurring guilt. It has, these two, it has this two-fold notion. The act of sin, whereby we become all guilty all over again. And the fact of sin, whence occurs with it the emotional tor- turmoil due to our knowledge of failing to abide by our Father's law. In other words, we messed up again. The solution to recurring guilt. Now, unsurprisingly, the solution for this particular species of guilt is completely identical to the first. However, the situation differs. In the first situation, with initial guilt, we are, sorry, estranged from God altogether, having no hope until we're brought into the family of God. But in the second situation, we're already in the family of God, and by our sin, we strain our relationship with our Father. So what's needed, therefore, is the acknowledgement of our sin and restoration of fellowship with God. In short, getting beyond initial guilt requires accepting our invitation into the family of God. In other words, the gospel. However, getting beyond recurring guilt begins by accepting our acceptance into the family of God, from which forgiveness and restoration follow. Please allow me to expound on this point just a little further. Why bother bringing this up if the solution is the same thing as initial guilt? In other words, we're sinners, we're going to hell, all of a sudden we we accept Christ, we're saved, now everything's fine, and this seems to be the same answer. Why am I even bringing up recurring guilt? Well, my answer to that is that it seems to me that this can be a very great difficulty for most Christians because Christians are plagued with guilt and they end up not seeking God. Now, this is a great paradox in the Christian life. On the one hand, we believe God and we're saved and accepted into his family. On the other hand, we don't trust him to forgive us now. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? It doesn't, make any, it doesn't make any sense. It's entirely irrational, but that's what we do. And I think the primary reason for this, or at least part of it, is that we really don't have a clear grasp or appreciation and I mean literally appreciation, appraising the value of what Christ did for us on the cross and how it applies to us today. And I think if I can make that a little more clear, maybe it'll be helpful for, this, for us in this endeavor. For example, one of the clarion calls of the Reformation was sola fide, meaning we are saved by what alone? Fide, fideism, faith alone. However, after we're saved, many Christians try to live perfectly. That's what the Mormons do. Because after all, Scripture says, therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. First Peter says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in other words, we accept our initial salvation, which we call justification in theological jargon, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, by God alone. But then we make the mistake of thinking our sanctification is by works alone, that we get better because of what we do, when in fact that's also by grace alone. Paul chides the Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? In Philippians 1, 6, he asks, or he says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. And in Philippians 2, 13, he says, for it is God who is at work in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, whether the you in there is plural or not is not my point. The point is that it's God who's doing the work in a group, church setting like now, and also for you as an individual person. This is God at work in you. So it's crucial to remember that the solution for recurring guilt, both its objective status in reaffirming or reconfirming that we're sinners, and also its debilitating effects on us emotionally, is grounded in Christ's achievements. And I'm going to talk about that this for a moment here. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And starting in verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In other words, there's a drawing to the throne of grace that is our responsibility. That's what you have to do if you're ever to get beyond this. James says in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, draw near to God that he may draw near to you. There's something you have to do, something that I have to do. So we usually think we have to do something before we draw near to him. And this is the great problem of believers here. This is going to be the stumbling block for us. Hang with me, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to try to read through this fairly fast to get through it. Starting in verse 1, it says this. If you can't follow along through, because these NASB is hard to follow, just try to get the main point with me here. It says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? So if you remember your Old Testament, the Jews... They're slaughtering animals, constantly making offerings all the time. And the author of the book of Hebrews is simply saying, if that did anything, would you need more offerings? Because after you make an offering, the sinner is made perfect and you don't need another offering. Why? Because he's perfect. She's perfect. They don't sin anymore. But obviously that's not the case. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, he says, or therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll it is written of me to do your will, O God. Talking about Jesus here. After saying above, Sacrifices and sin offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Hang with me here for a sec. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In other words, there is no offering left. 
Let me say it again. There's no offering left. The problem of believers is they think they have to do something before they come back to God. Because now that they've already accepted Christ and they still sin, we have this burden there. We go, ah, oh, well, now I've got to get it right. There's nothing you can offer God to get it right again. There was nothing you could have offered God beforehand to save you. And now that you're saved, there's still nothing you can offer God. Now, somebody who knows their Bible is going to quote to me Romans 12.1. That says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sin offering, or as an offering, wholly acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual service of worship, to which I respond, Yes, but the goal of offering your body is worship. It's not to take away sin. You cannot take away your own sin by offering anything to God, not even yourself. You couldn't do it beforehand. You can't do it now. We have to get this engraved in our minds and hearts. This was symbolized when the veil was torn. Now Christ intercedes for you personally. You, as an individual, personally. The other part of John of 1 John 2.1, when he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not... What did it say? Sin. But then he says, But if anybody does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who also intercedes for you. You remember when Jesus was talking to Peter and said, uh, Peter, Peter, uh, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Well, then what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, but I'm not going to let him. He says, but I have prayed for you i have prayed for you christ is interceding before god for you as an old hymn goes what ye ask me is my prize what the secret to be wise what the wealth i value most what the name wherein i boast who the ground of my belief who from guilt doth give relief who my ransom once hath paid who forgiveth all my sin Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the crucified. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So the way we rid ourselves of, recur of recurring guilt is to apply the atonement, apply the atonement of Christ to our lives. We do it by confessing our sins before God, simple enough. Accepting our acceptance in the beloved, that's the hard part. Most of us bring our problems and lay them at the foot of the cross, right? And then we pick up our burdens and we take them away when we turn around and walk back away. It's accepting our acceptance in the beloved and trusting God that He'll come through with what He tells us He'll do. That's the tough one. 1 John 1, 9, a verse we should all have memorized. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Notice this doesn't say He's, he's kind and graceful or gracious or something. But he's faithful and righteous. What does that mean? It depends on his promise. He has unilaterally promised you that he will forgive you if you come to him. Wrapping up with Hebrews here, chapter 10, I'm in verse 19 now. This will go quick. You don't have to follow along if you don't want. Just listen, please. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of god let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, you approach the throne of grace boldly because of who Christ is, with reverence because of who you are, and He clears our conscience for us. Sometimes it takes time, but that's how we get our guilt, especially our emotional guilt, assuaged. John Newton, the great hymn writer, said, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself hath bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Lord, with my burden I begin. Lord, remove this load of sin. Set, let the blood for sinners spilt set my conscience free from guilt. That's how we come to Christ in prayer. So you see that recurring guilt is a real kind of guilt. Indeed, we really sin, we really experience the effects of sinning, and we really need forgiveness to be restored in fellowship with God. But there's nothing we can offer God before it or, or to take away our sin. Christ already did it. The offering is made. What we do instead, however, is to reappropriate or reapply the death of, our, of the death of Christ in our lives by communing with God. A pastor by the name of Stephen J. Cole writes this, While it's true that our eternal standing before God is secure through the blood of Jesus Christ, at the same time, if we love the Savior who gave himself up for us on the cross, when we grieve him by sinning, we should feel that grief that prompts us to confess our sin, and we should ask forgiveness and turn from our sin. It's not a matter of our standing before God, but rather our relationship with him. So if I sin against my dad, there really is a rift that occurs in our relationship. Now, as his son, he won't disown me. But my sin really does strain that relationship, and I need to confess it to restore it. Same with our Heavenly Father. He will never disown you as his blood-bought son or daughter of Christ. But if you do sin, you need to be forgiven relationally, not positionally. You need to be forgiven relationally, not positionally. You need your conscience cleansed by Jesus' blood. This takes place when we repent, confess, and ask forgiveness of sins. It's all founded on the atonement, what Christ accomplished on the cross. As Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf said, and anybody with a name like that deserves listening to, I think, says, Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved of these I am from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Praise God. Isn't that cool? So if you're experiencing guilt today, hurry to your heavenly Father. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So we've covered initial guilt and recurring guilt up to this point. I'm just going to quickly touch on the topic of false guilt. Definition. By false guilt, I simply mean the feelings of guiltiness, sad, sorrow, regret, a stricken conscience, if you will, that accompanies innocent actions or an innocent person. This can originate from Satan or our own consciousness. Now remember what I said at the beginning. It's, it's just my opinion that I think false guilt is the most detrimental to spiritual progress, particularly because it's not founded in the truth. It's founded in our heads or from Satan. Either way, it's founded in a lie. 
And if we pay enough attention to that, it can really mess us up. False guilt can result both in depression and spiritual paralysis. It leads a Christian to think that God has somehow forgotten them. Despite being convinced that they're saved, although sometimes this is in question, sometimes people struggle, am I really saved? They literally feel unlovable and hopeless. And someone in this situation may, re- may require long-term restoration, even counseling. Nevertheless, the guilt itself is literally unfounded. It's based in falsehood. Solution. This is a novel solution. Does anybody want to guess it? The gospel. The solution is once again the gospel. It's knowing what Christ did for you, then shifting your focus on Him regularly. Now, this is very difficult to overcome because false guilt is me-centered. You say, well, all sin is me-centered. Well, yeah, sure, in a sense that's true, that's fine. But what I'm saying is the person who sins and knows he sins and doesn't want to give up that sin, well, that's, that's, that's a problem that they can eventually overcome if they want. But false guilt comes from somebody who's always looking at the inner person. They're always looking at myself. How am I doing? You know, what have I done? Why doesn't God love me? I'm the special one that God hates, right? To deal adequately with this problem, we need more than just devotionals. That's why this is hard. Because, at least from personal experience, you do 10-minute, 15-minute, half-hour devotionals a day, you're, you're not going to be building a relationship with the Lord strong enough to get past this. Personally, for me, I had to read Martin Lloyd-Jones' book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. That's a great book. I would highly commend it to you if you're going through this. But we need to be ministered to in a long-term way that will turn our eyes away from ourselves and turn them back to God regularly. I'll say it again, regularly. You cannot be just hit or miss in the relationship with the Lord and get past this. I recently heard Adrian Rogers quote Corey Tenboom. She was the Dutch watchmaker who, with her family, helped the Jews... Uh, escape the Holocaust by hiding people in her closet. And she said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. That is the secret. The secret's not hard. I mean, there it is, written plain bold letters for us. If we look at Him, we'll be at rest. The problem, indeed it's a difficult one, turning our eyes away from here and focusing them constantly up there where they need to be very difficult so if you're experiencing false guilt first of all you need to take an inventory of what's going on in your life because you got to see if it's really false guilt and then you need to measure those things by the word of god that's the only way you're going to be able to find out if your guilt is legitimate or legitimately false or truly false if i can throw that monkey into that wrench you ask god to help you if you need help ask someone else to help you if you need help also If you discover it's really false guilt at work, you need to take time before the Lord and ask Him to help you see the truth of the gospel and that you're forgiven of all your sins and ask Him to help you shed the false guilt. So there's much more to be said on this issue, but it begins with what Christ did for us on the cross. He is the ultimate cure for all of our guilt that happens to be in reality and emotionally within us. Remember, always, always, always remember, there is nothing you can offer God nor that you need to offer God in order to get your 
get right with him. Christ offered the offering. There's nothing we can offer God. It was all done at the cross. So just go to him. I'll finally add, anyone who loves you enough to give his life for you in the past is powerful enough to raise you up to eternal life in the future is worth trusting and submitting to in the present. Let's pray. Father, from these you have truly forgiven us from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Lord, we praise you for the cross that uh, you who knew no sin, Lord Jesus, became sin on our behalf. Not meaning that we don't sin anymore, but simply meaning that you took the full punishment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so that if we, if we confess, we're forgiven. And that we've been forgiven in eternity. And that it's not a problem of, of uh, positional standing with you, Lord, but rather as relational standing, being a part of your family. If anybody in here is struggling with guilt today, Lord, I pray that you would help them see the gospel in a clear light, that you would give them the strength to turn their eyes from themselves and turn them onto uh, the cross of Christ. Uh, please help us to see and understand what you did, that by one offering you sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Lord Jesus. You indeed said, it is finished. If any of us are struggling, Lord, even with real guilt, help us to repent for our sins. Come to you. We thank you for this time and this season again. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.